Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week I am joined by Adam McQueen and Helen Lewis, as always, for a look at the week's news since the magazine last came out. Also, later on, we're going to be talking to Richard Brooks, long-time veteran of the podcast, who will be talking about various uh, hangovers of PPE after COVID. Not that COVID is over. Anyway, more cheery news to start off with. Uh, so... One of the big stories that's broken since the last issue of The Eye was published is that Nadine Dorries, MP for Mid-Bedfordshire, previously uh, Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, has resigned. And the exciting thing is that this is a really uh, a really huge resignation because it's such a long resignation, because it started two months ago <laughs> when she said I'm resigning. I was going to say, you're resign. stretching the definition of breaking news here, aren't you? This was breaking news in June <laughs> and has been ever since. Hasn't it? Well, she hasn't actually gone yet. We're recording this on Tuesday morning and she hasn't yet got her letter in applying for the Chilton Hundreds, I don't think. So anything could happen. This can't be a secondary bluff. <laughs> this, it can't be. Can it, it could go on forever. She'll be the, uh, the, the, the MP for Mid-Bedfordshire <laughs> in perpetuity and for life. I think what's finally driven her out is the fact that I described her in the magazine this week as quasi-MP Nadine Doris. <laughs> that must be that it. Was it. That was it sh- shamed her. So it's a very interesting story because basically Doris has been trying to resign with to cause maximum discomfort to uh, the Prime Minister because she she's um, uh, Boris forever. And she also has been keeping her role in Parliament. I mean, you know, we slightly cynically suggested a couple of issues ago because she still employs her daughter as a parliamentary researcher. And, you know, you might not want to put yourself out of a job, but also putting one of your children out of a job will be really annoying around the Christmas table. So there's an argument for that as well. But she has said, right, fine, I am actually going to be activating the children hundreds. But as you point out, Adam, she hasn't. Well, I mean, we have pointed out several times in the magazine as well that she's yet to bill uh, Talk TV or the Daily Mail mm. for her um, for any of her fees, probably rather more lucrative than being an MP, actually, from there. So, I mean, to be honest, she has needed the MP's salary. And I'm sure her daughter, uh, the, the cash, will have, cash for the, the summer's work will have come in, not work or non-work, will have come in quite handy there as well. Yeah. Can I say my favourite thing about the resignation letter is that I imagine some executive at the Daily Mail took it across to Boris Johnson and went... This this is what we want from your column. Stop it. Stop it with the submarines and the Zempic. This is the good stuff. Like proper, proper bitching about Rishi Sunak. Do it like this. But as we record on Tuesday morning, it, I turned, as I do every Tuesday morning, eager and ready for it, to the Nadine Dorries page in the Daily Mail. She's not even there this week. The, 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 writing that resignation letter and releasing it exclusively to the Mail on Sunday, which is something of a, a, an unprecedented thing, I think, when it comes to resigning as an MP. <laughs> uh, it, it just took it all out of her. She couldn't possibly churn out another column. So we just have a big advert saying Nadine will be back next week. That's fabulous. And treating it, I, I mean, treating it as a column as well, because it... Okay, I think we should read some extracts. And I think if, if possible, Matt, if, if the production allows for this, if we have the budget, I think maybe some stirring romance novel music underneath various bits of it might I mean it might be worth adding it might add something mightn't it also it's very very long this one it's about 1800 words god it goes on she bangs on forever doesn't she and I looked at her last uh, contributions in the House of Commons and less than half this and that was when she was actually Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, answering <laughs> proper submitted questions about the brief and about the nature of the work I she was felt, doing. I felt like it took me as long, to, nearly as long to read it as it's taken her to actually resign. It was extraordinary. Just thousands of words. I know. I mean, and there are bits where you think, needs an edit. But it does, it does hold true to the standard ministerial uh, resignation letter template in lots of ways. So thing one you do, you say, it's been a great honour. Thing two... I've done an enormous amount of good work. Thing three, through reasons that are absolutely nothing to do with me, I'm leaving. And then depending on whether you're leaving 
angrily or the PM didn't really want to get rid of you, you then have a little wrap-up at the end. But, okay, here we go. When I arrived in mid-Bedfordshire in 2005, I inherited a Conservative majority of 8,000. Over five elections, this has increased to almost 25,000, making it one of the safest seats in the country. A legacy I am proud of. We'll see about that. <laughs> I mean, the, the <laughs> yeah. interesting thing about the by-election is that the Lib Dems have obviously been embedded in doing their classic hardcore by-election um, working for some time. Um, but Labour also feel like they've got a decent chance to change the seat. So it's, impos- mm. it's possible that like kind of Laurel and Hardy getting stuck in the door, <laughs> Labour and the Lib Dems might eat into each other's vote and, and, and they might actually still be a, a Conservative safe seat at the end of it. Can I read you my favourite yes. bit after you've done yours? Because I, I do have a favourite bit. Hold on. Okay, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my favourite <laughs> bit once you're preparing yours. The offer to continue in my cabinet role was extended to me by your predecessor, Liz Truss, and I am grateful for your personal phone call on the morning you appointed your cabinet in October, even if I declined to take the call. It's just the greatest (laughs) line ever, isn't it? It's the most perfect thing of... Somehow she thinks she is the one that comes out well from that sentence. (laughs) Rishi Sunak bothered to put in a phone call to her, at which point she just said... I ain't going to take that snake's phone call. Ain't never going to happen. And uh, I'm just uh, how how she thinks that shows her in a good light and him in a bad light is just. Uh, I know. Wow. Wow. My favourite line is the bit where she goes into the pen about all the terrible things that this government has mm. done. The bonfire of EU legislation swerved. The Windsor Framework Agreement, a dead duck, brought into existence by shady promises of future preferment with grubby rewards and potential gongs to MPs. And you're like, subs, please check. Was, isn't your whole complaint the fact that you had a shady promise of a gong to an MP and then it didn't pay off? <laughs> I mean, talking of subs, please check, the line, you hold the office of Prime Minister unelected without a single vote, not even for your own MPs. He won the vote of MPs in the leadership election against Liz Truss. I went back and checked. 137 votes for Rishi, 113 for Liz. It was the membership that then put Liz Truss in for that that extraordinary comedy banana republic 40 days or whatever it was that we had, which now seems like some weird cheese dream, doesn't it? But um, I do think with with, with Nadine Doris, I mean, she's a, she's a... I was remembering that blog that she used to write when she when when she was still on the back benches, and and do you remember she was then hauled up on it for some reason, and she said that about forty percent of it was fiction, and actually I realised that that's that that's the kind of um, the key I think to Nadine is in a very similar way to uh, to, to to Donald Trump actually, and to Mohammed Fayed and um, Jeffrey Archer and and many of the, the the truly great storytellers of our time. It's not so much not caring what the truth is; it's simply not really understanding. The difference mm. between fiction and truth. If you have the absolute conviction that what you are saying at any given moment is reality, you can do anything. You can absolutely get away with anything. I mean, this is not quite fermenting a revolution to try and bring down them, bring down the American state, but but, but still, yet. <laughs> to just come out with things that are are so obviously and provably wrong like that, it's it, it's a rare skill. It's amazing, and also just a kind of complete lack of shamelessness at being brought up on stuff. Well, you now see a genre of person who tweets deliberately bad takes and kind of gets dunked on and you think god i would go away and hide in a hole and never be seen again and they kind of carry on remorselessly that that vibe is also very strong in Nadine for example the bit when she went on about Cameron and Osborne being posh boys while having a sort of massive crush on Boris Johnson who also went <laughs> to Eton and it was just sort of and, and and I wonder actually am I the fool because obviously she's not embarrassed by the contradiction inherent in that and, and I've just what I've done is I've just sort of given her more attention by pointing it out well there is at the risk of doing yet more bits of it 
but she, she asked about the, the, you know, why we've had five Conservative Prime Ministers and not one of the previous four having left office as the result of losing a general election. That is a democratic deficit which the mother of parliaments should be deeply ashamed of and which, as you and I know, interesting, is the result of the machinations of a small group of individuals embedded deep at the centre of the party and Downing Street. Which slightly ignores the fact that it's not the same people who got rid of all these prime ministers. But it also kind of ignores the fact that it, it was hardly manoeuvres in the dark, was it? I mean, it was, what was it, 52 ministers who unembedded themselves from Downing Street and from government. Yeah, and, and actually, you, at that point, wrote resignation letters, which they didn't release exclusively to the Mail on Sunday, uh, saying why they were going. Um, I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, this has slightly been elided now. We all seem to have sort of forgotten about Chris Pincher and the, the fact that, um, mm. the, 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 that everyone, that, that was the point at which start, everyone started resigning from Boris Johnson's government. I mean, one of the, something that struck me this morning is Nadine has finally gone. Chris Pincher is still there. Chris Pincher is hanging on for even longer. I mean, the committee came back right at the end of the last parliamentary term uh, and, and recommended his his, his um, suspension from uh, from Parliament to uh, for, for a, a period of time which would have triggered a, a, a could have triggered a by-election petition. He appealed that at the very last minute. So when um, when, when they all come back uh, bright and early in their new blazers for the new parliamentary term in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, Chris Pincher will be there even if Nadine is not. There's also a very odd bit, and again, this is me with my sort of sub-editor's hat mm. on, saying where it sort of implies that she wishes that more of those Tory prime ministers had lost an election. And that would have been the sort of right and fair thing to do. None of these people even lost an election, which would be the democratic way to get rid of them. And you're like, but you're a conservative. The real, like, you don't want that to happen. And she- I love her. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to miss her. I'm going to oh, miss her. I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to miss her because we're going to have to read the bloody novel. Every Tuesday in the Daily Mail. Every Tuesday in the Daily Mail, Helen. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no, it is It is interesting because it's a. It's sort of, as you say, it's a kind of semi-novel. And she says, my investigation's focused initially on the political assassination of Boris Johnson. But then she spoke to more people and a dark story emerged, which grew ever more disturbing with each person I spoke to. It became clear to me as I worked that remaining as a backbencher was incompatible with publishing a book which exposes how the democratic process at the heart of our party has been corrupted. You think? <laughs> but it's, it's amazing, pure moving on for the fact that I wanted to get into the House of Lords and now I'm not. So I'm off. It's absolutely phenomenal that America has QAnon with people in like shaman <laughs> horns and f- firing guns in pizza restaurants because they think there are paedophile satanic rings being run out the basement. And we've got Nadine Doris being quite upset about the 1922 <laughs> committee. It makes you proud. There's not even any snacks of any, any kind involved as far as I can see, let alone Satanists. Come on, Satanists, oh, where are dear. you? I, I didn't realise just how many uh, resignation letters that I've read in the last year or so. The last 18 months, say, because obviously they go up on Twitter and, you know, you read them and they think, OK, right, then you move on. But God, I've looked back. There are some really fantastic ones out there. So Nadim Zahawi, uh, January this year, this is the one when he received a letter from Rishi Sunak saying, you're sacked, basically. Thank you for your kind words. It has been, after being blessed with my loving family, the privilege of my life to serve in successive governments and make a tangible difference to the country I love. Uh, I arrived in this country fleeing persecution and speaking no English. No mention at all of HMRC. I mean, <laughs> well, you wonder if he's then going to go into it, this being the excuse for why he filled in his forms wrongly to HMRC. Right. Don't you? But, but no, 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 that's yeah. not the story. And then quickly mentions the vaccine rollout and my role in the morning period for Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, as though he'd done it all, done all the morning. Did he have a role? Well, he was the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Duchy oh, of Lancaster. right. Okay. So he had to kind of sign that over to King Charles, right? Yeah, exactly. Was it not also him that brought the note into the Commons? 
I have a memory oh. of him scuttling along the front bench and passing a note to Rishi. <laughs> it was to Liz, no? If you remember, I've Liz done it Trust again, haven't I? I've forgotten that Liz Trust was Prime Minister. I've got to try and remember. I think my brain is trying to knock it out. It's <laughs> Liz Trust went to see the Queen, was photographed with the Queen, and the very next day, the Queen decided she'd had it enough. It was her one big achievement That's as Prime it. Minister in those 40 days, wasn't it, to kill the Queen? Yes, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know how I'd forgotten that. <laughs> Can't you, don't you remember yeah. her amazing, yeah. moving um, speech outside Downing Street and then again at the funeral, Adam? It was really, really touching stuff. Hmm. Anyway, Nadine... Um, we can't wait to read your book. I genuinely didn't know whether or not you were trolling me then. I was Helen! Like, is he making that up? Because it obviously wasn't her. She, did she, I think she did a reading, didn't she? She did a fairly sort of a bit of Galatians or something fairly um, undramatic. I am at this point between the three of us starting to doubt that Liz Truss ever actually existed. Have we made her up? <laughs> She's not Mandela. This is not the Mandela syndrome. No, no, no. She did a reading at the funeral and, uh, and she spoke outside Downing Street. Actually, during the funeral, an Australian news channel misidentified her as a minor royal. Um, as she was arriving. <laughs> so you're not the only ones who are confused. She is real. We must remember. She's real. She's out there. She'll be back. All right, we should move on from Nadine now. But speaking of minor royals, actually, Adam, uh, you have some news about, can we say a major royal? Is it weird to call the king a major royal? I mean, he is. I think probably he is kind of the top dog, isn't he? He is, he is <laughs> as royals go, uh, kind of right up there, isn't he? I think you yeah. have to say that, certainly. Uh, yes, no, this was um, Flunky, our, our, our person in the palace, uh, reported last week that um, the uh, first anniversary of the death of Her Majesty the Queen is coming up. And almost everything that we expected to, uh, to materialise with the, with the reign of King Charles III has sort of failed to happen, hasn't it? I mean, we've for decades, it felt like, probably felt like centuries for him. We were getting all of these briefings about how it was all going to be a new modern monarchy and he was going to mm. change everything and, 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 and everything was going to be different. Very, very little has changed, has it? Um, nothing, no, nothing much at all. Something has changed, Adam, so. which is that I got to go to Buckingham Palace, which was great. Was this this so this for an nice. honour, or were you just? No, I got invited to go to the um, women's International Women's Day reception at Buckingham Palace, no. and uh, desperate to check out the Royal Loos, I obviously instantly said yes. And let me tell you, the Royal Loos are incredible. They're made of wood. Like, not, and not just a wooden seat, but a hole, like, as if they were on a ship. There's just basically a big wooden square with a hole in it. I was, that was, that was a really, I mean, in many ways, the highlight. And the canapes were good, but the, the loos were So incredible. they're still that kind of medieval style. Do they still long, do they actually just long drop off the edge of the palace and <laughs> down into the moat? Gosh. <laughs> I hope so. Yes, it's very much like, it's actually very eco. Mm. I had to go back to 13th century toileting arrangement. I like the way, Helen, that um, you say that yeah. this has changed as though there was a long-standing ban on Helen Lewis entering the grounds or buildings of Buckingham Palace while the Queen was alive. And it's only now, it's only now with Well, Charles, I'm but... alive. That woman will never come near me. <laughs> it's true. I was literally cancelled by Elizabeth II. Yeah, and finally that has now been overturned. Wow. Um, okay, yeah. so I take it back. Everything everything has been modernised. It's a brave new world. No, well, hot on the heels of Flunky's report, the very little was going on, came a report in the email on Sunday uh, uh, this last weekend uh, saying that actually many things are now going to change uh, and that um, Prince Charles will be streamlining and modernising the monarchy by uh, sacking loads and loads of royal servants. Um, there, there, there are way too many of them, he has decided. And this is one of those really unenviable kind of PR jobs because that sounds really, really nice in concept. But do you remember the last time when he sacked a load of royal servants it was in, it was announced that most of the queen's personal staff had been were been given their redundancy notices during i think a memorial service for her and everyone was up in arms about that and we never end we never stop hearing about backstairs billy who was the uh, the the uh, the page of the chamber who was unceremoniously booted out of his job when the queen mother died back in in, in i think 2001 i've got bad news to you 
about Backstairs Billy and that he is um, going to be the subject of a new play which is coming to the West End um, this autumn. So you see... You see I mean, what I mean? I'm, I'm <laughs> 22, really, 22 really years on, we're still getting right. West End dramas about these things. So the idea oh. that actually you're going to make yourself look good by uh, by booting out a load of royal servants. But um, I mean, the, the even less obliging line, this was a bit like the Nadine Dorries line of, of, of where, where she seems to think it made her look better. There was a line that was obviously briefed to the Mail on Sunday, which said that um, Camilla this year has arrived at Balmoral with the rest of the royal family, but she, she cannot be doing with the royal flummery and the legions of servants that they've got there. So she's going to stay at one of their other castles instead, Burkle, <laughs> nearby. That's handy, isn't it? They've got another royal residence. And it keeps bringing up that thing that you keep coming back to with, uh, with, with, with Prince Charles. Again, there's a, 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 a very uh, nicely brief story in the Telegraph today that said that, the, uh, that Prince Charles... Uh, I keep calling him Prince Charles, don't I? I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting about that. King as well, Prince Charles is the proper King, title. Yeah. King Prince Charles, as he is now known, <laughs> um, is going is to crack down on food waste. And that's going to be the big kind of uh, the, the, the crusade that's going on. But... It's a bit rich, uh, in, literally, for him to be talking about wastage in any way. I mean, he has so many properties, such an extraordinary list of of palaces. We have this also um, extraordinary situation where we, we we're pretending that Buckingham Palace is still an official royal residence, even though he doesn't live there, uh, and and are showing so no sign of moving in because that's the only way that can justify the fact that taxpayers, uh, due to um, a, a a deal that Theresa May did a few years ago, are paying out millions and millions of pounds to refurbish that place. But there's also these properties all over the shop, and it's not just him as well. I, this this is something I learned from um, from from Flunky a little while ago. His son has got nearly as many houses as him. Now, the, the, the briefing that's kind of going on at the moment is Prince William is going to be the man who's going to change the monarchy, and we're all going to be they're going to be bicycling around like the uh, like like the Dutch royal family. But um, I mean, he's going to have to divest himself of uh, of, of quite a lot of his own uh, houses if he want, if he really wants to kind of look like a, a man of the people as well. There was a bit in the um, canteen report where it said the fact that they're going to have one set of servants who are going to cook the same food for the royals and for the staff, which was a bit like that bit when the government announced that the police were going to prosecute crimes over the weekend. And you were like, oh, I mean, that seems like you could have done that before. But I think the other thing was it in the flunky report about the fact that he he was going to go abroad to France on a state visit and that got cancelled because they were basically sort of rioting mm. outside Versailles and traditionally that hasn't been a good sign for any monarchs <laughs> in the area. But apart from that, the only place he's been is to his other random places in Romania. His, like, he has lots, of, lots yeah. of places in Transylvania, yeah, yeah, which um, a bit, but, but, who, who knew about that before? But uh, William, as I, sorry, I've just found the list from Flunky here. Adelaide Cottage at Windsor, Kensington Palace Pad, Anne Hall at Sandringham, He's got a rural retreat in Landovery as well, and Restormel Manor in Lost Lost with Eel. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Apologies to mm-hmm. uh, to 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 the Welsh nation if I'm getting those wrong. But that that's an awful lot of houses for um for a couple who are uh, for a millennial for a millennial mm. Adam. That's the uh, yes, there's not many of them that have been that quite that successful in getting on the property ladder by his age, are there? That's what happens when you don't eat avocados. That, that is the kind of property portfolio you're able to build up. Yeah, because the avocados are all being served to the servants instead. They're not fit for the uh, for the, for, the, for the royal food. No. It's the bank of great 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 granny and great 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 granddad isn't it and it's you know it's just thrift it is but it also it is fundamentally at odds with this rather nice and very successful kind of pr campaign that's been to kind of present william and kate as kind of the Bowden royals of just being these rather nice i mean quite well off but you know sort of nicely middle class kind of mm. david camerony type of um, <laughs> uh, 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 um uh, nice nice people with a pad in the country it's you, whenever you start talking about modernizing the monarchy in any way you do come up against this fundamental problem 
of what the monarchy is uh, and the fact that they they, 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 they they do by definition live a life of, un, of unimaginable privilege to the rest of us um, yeah. and it, 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 it's it's always going to be a challenge that uh, royal spin doctors have always grappled with and and, 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 and are never going to be able to solve I don't think I love the phrase Bowdoin royals <laughs> that's right um, like Pharaoh and Orb that's my, my pitch <laughs> I did see one report saying and this was in the last week or so that, that Charles is now being pitched as the caretaker, um, caretaker monarch. And it's... Not by him, presumably. <laughs> I imagine that's the kind of thing that would lead to quite an outburst uh, if he reads that. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it, seemed, it seemed to be sort of semi from within his bit of the palace, saying, you know, he's, he, he's not going to be changing everything. You know, he's, he's knocking on a bit. And, and really, William's going to be the one who, as Adam says, radically changes things. But I did think, Caretaker is quite is quite a thing. Uh, but like the, ja- but the janitor say, we, monarch. We loop back to where we started with this, and I can remember at least twenty, if not thirty, years of reading that you know there was going to be this radical change, and really we were just ticking over towards the end of the Queen's life. And as soon as King Charles mm. came in, everything was going to change. And and then immediately, I mean, it was extraordinary the way that we were just sort of bulldozed into the reign of King Charles. There was absolutely no question of uh, <laughs> a, a rising of any of whether this was going to happen or not. You know, republicanism just was sort of it was it was a few people with placards being being arrested on the day of the coronation, but that was that was. The, the, the kind of only outlet that was that, that that was allowed for it, but we just sort of went straight into what's turned out to be more and more of the same. However, there is very exciting news on the Meghan Markle front, which is that an Instagram account opened at the weekend with a with a peony, which apparently is her favourite flower, and immediately attracted many many followers. So there is the theory that she might return to the old influencing. Her and Carrie Johnson, who's I have to say Greek holiday, I've been much enjoying over the last <laughs> week or so. She's been eating a lot of feta, which I uh, thoroughly approve of. Um, yeah, it could be uh, could be coming back to Instagram, which I would I, I think would be phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Battle of Carrie and Meghan as influencers on on Instagram that would be oh. fantastic. But Carrie Johnson's Instagram looks like a sort of Laura Ashley advert from the seventies. The bits of it I've seen, it's extraordinary. It's just sort of it's just bucolic it's, fields um, and um, and gentle light light lighting and enormous flowery dresses. I believe it? it to be cottage core is what we're calling that. Right. Yeah. So if you've learned nothing um, else today, listeners, you've got Bowden Royals and Cottage Core. <laughs> Should we not talk a bit about the, um, the the Met announcing that they're not going to be investigating any further after all? The uh, the Cash for Honours inquiry into the King's charity. You, you see, Andy, what you've said there is that the Met aren't doing a very good job of being policed. Oh, no, no. My brain is struggling to Helen, comprehend absolute, or process absolutely that. Absolutely not. I'm sure they're doing a brilliant job of investigating. It's just it, they've announced that there's going to be no further action taken. They've been looking into it for 18 months, which must have been a full-on 18 months for them as well. Do you think this is what Suella Braverman had in mind when she said she wants the Met to investigate every <laughs> single thing? <laughs> Except not her speeding offences, clearly. That's the one thing that's very important that no one, in fact, investigates. Yeah, absolutely. She just quietly goes on a speeding course under an assumed name as, like, <laughs> Buella Saverman. So those are the royals. Now we turn to the other, can I say, queen across the water? The queen of all our hearts, yeah. I, I'm beginning to develop a segue game, and I'm happy about it. I'm talking, of course, <laughs> about former PM... Theresa May. And she's got a book coming out. Is that right, Helen? Yeah, it's called Abuse of Power and it's coming out in the middle of September. So she's started to trail the exclusive extracts from this heart-stoppingly vivid page-turner. Um, with a Yeah, she had an interview in the Times and an, an extract of it too. I'll be honest with you, the problem with political memoirs is that they are usually the case for the defence. Mm. You know, it was he knew he was right, or in this case she knew she was right. And there is a lot of that about the fact that 
she did claim that basically without beastly John Burko having put the thumb on the scales, a thing which is true did happen, right? He was very keen to let anybody who had any objections to Brexit have their say in Parliament. But she claims that without that, the DUP definitely well would have probably voted for her, her deal and everything would have been fine and she'd have got Brexit. Now, it turns out I have basically wiped this entire three-year period from my brain as some kind of protective mechanism. So I texted someone who follows the DUP very closely. I said, did this happen? And their response was simply, nah. <laughs> so there we go. That's the, that's the final history's final verdict on Theresa May's claim that if it hadn't been for those pesky burkos, she would definitely have got Brexit through. That's unusual, isn't it? Asking the it's DUP not... something and them saying no. <laughs> right, but I think the thing that's interesting about it is that is that what is the point of writing a political memoir now? That they generally don't sell that many mm. copies, right? Unless you're Tony Blair or Barack Obama, you tend to get a small advance. And a, I think prime ministers are very attached to the idea of kind of having their say. And, and they see this as the vehicle for them to kind of like put down on the historical record what they thought they were trying to do and um, and what they were going to, you know, what they were kind of thinking as it all happened. And the trouble in the case of Theresa May is that the record is just one of a failure. And, and to be credit to her, like everybody I know who's worked with her has said she's a fundamentally pretty decent person in a lot of ways, obviously inadequate to the job of prime minister, as it turned out. But that, you know, she she does therefore, in the, she doesn't have the Nadine Doris delusion. She does acknowledge that it was all a catastrophic cock-up and she never got anything through and then she threw away the 2017 election so it might be promised to be a slightly more humble book than some of the other mm. uh, political memoirs that are coming out the magazine this week we've also written about nicola sturgeon's memoir which is promised uh, to take you inside the room where it happened unless her husband was also in the room in which case it didn't happen <laughs> and no one knew anything about it um and Friend of the uh, podcast Nadim Zahawi's <laughs> memoir, which, uh, as promised, will chart him his journey from from Iraq to um, forgetting to declare the right amount of taxes. Um, it's a moving, moving portrait of overcoming adversity of not being able to read your tax return properly. Just quickly on the uh, Nadim Zahawi thing, I think the article that uh, that we printed said the advance you've been paid was something like six thousand pounds, and obviously um, publishing pays yes. you in chunks, so that that might be a quarter of the overall. Some, let's say, you know, the, the writing fee or like signature and agreement, whatever. For a guy with uh, Nadim Zahawi's money, because he, he is a multimillionaire, £24,000 total for the pain in the arse of writing a book is is really not very much. And so it g- just goes to what you say, Helen, about the reason that people write these books. It's just setting the record straight. Because I don't think, clearly the publishers don't think many people are going to buy it. For a long time, the, the established model was run by a publisher called Biteback, um, which was founded by, set up by Ian Dale. Um, and the idea was that you political books didn't sell very much, but what they would do is give you a very small advance. You'd write it, you'd write a biography of a politician, and, you know, a kind of hungry journalist on the, mm. on the up and up. And then you would probably find one really great story on it, which you'd sell to the Mail on Sunday or the Sunday Times for 10, 15 grand. And that's essentially really where you made your money. So that, you know, some of that kind of... Not exactly vanity publishing. It's not self-publishing, but it is certainly mm. not. You know, you're not. It's not a commercial book industry in quite the same way as you go into one of the kind of big five publishers. I know. <laughs> I remember my um, my former New Statesman colleague Mehdi Hassan wrote a, co-wrote a biography of Ed Miliband, in which I threatened to give him the puff quote: "If you only read one Ed Miliband <laughs> biography this year, make it this one." <laughs> but they did exactly that, and they they had a story about David and Ed falling out um, that went into the Mail on Sunday, um, and you know that has been the established kind of political biography kind of model for quite a long time so yeah some of them do so I mean I, I chunder my way through the Barack Obama post um, presidency one by god that was boring it didn't half go on I just, you know, I just very, wonder if anyone in the publishing industry is ever going to wake up and go hang on guys 
these don't sell at all and no one wants to read them. Why are we doing this? Because, I mean, it's still, you, you said it's not quite funny. I mean, they're, 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 they are spending money, presumably. The, the advances are, are, are not enormous. But actually, printing copies of these things and distributing mm. them and advertising them and getting them out there, there's still money going on. And it just feels like one of those things that no one in the publishing industry has ever stopped and said, why are we doing this? It's a bit, you know, it's just what you do. It's like every prime minister, Anthony Seldon, has to write an end-of-term report on them and we have to publish that and we have to pretend it's a news story. Although he's not doing Liz Trust, not, not because like me he's forgotten that she existed but she's going to be an appendix apparently to his, his oh. Boris Johnson one. Oh that's really oh. cool because what what is an appendix except something irritating you have to have removed Yes yes it Andy <laughs> I think you're exactly right. I think there is an assumption that p- people might... T- and actually, maybe, you know, what being Nadim Zahawi's publisher has got some good long-term connections beyond the fact that you think it's going to be number one and they are... But it's going to knock, uh, you know, um, Reverend Richard Coles's on, uh, yeah, Richard Osman's um, books. Off the <laughs> what was the last one that sold? Probably. Was it was... Because um, notoriously, none of Gordon... I mean, Gordon Brown kept writing books. He was writing books throughout his time in Downing Street and they all sold about 32 copies. But, Blair's um, books sold. Blair's book did sell, didn't it? Yeah, I think Blair's sold, right? Obama's obviously sold very well in the States. Um, most of the US, there's a publisher called Regnery that does most of the US conservative politicians. I think they sell all right because there's lots of them. Alan Johnson sold very well because at mm. least the two of them that I read were genuinely very nicely written. That's the difference, isn't um, it? Yeah. I mean, there are there are politicians out there who can genuinely write. He is one of them. The other one is Chris Mullin, whose um, volumes of diaries are, are absolutely brilliant and give you a really... Because I think he actually called one of them a view from the foothills. He was never a very major player in government, but he was there and he was observing. He was more interested in other people than himself, I think, which always helps uh. with uh, with authors, although not necessarily with politicians. So they are, they are, they're, they're, they're a cracking read, certainly. Giles Brandreth's Breaking the Code... His Westminster diaries are very good because, okay. again, junior whip. Yeah, but Matthew Paris is for the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, so, so, so I think people who've been on the outside and also kind of don't have any problem about burning their bridges. <laughs> I think that's the other thing, isn't it? Like, you have to really kind of leave and sort of do the full devil wears Prada where you just assume you're never going to work in this industry again and you might as well tell people exactly what you thought well, of it. I... <laughs> Whereas I suspect <laughs> Theresa May's memoir will be a little bit more cautious, reflecting her somewhat more cautious approach to life. Well, maybe Theresa May will take a, a leaf out of Nadine's book and we'll get a full bridge-burning exercise why everyone else is a snake and only Boris and I are true patriots. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't mind reading that. You're going to read it, aren't you? It's pre-ordered. I am actually. I think I genuinely have to read the Nadine. I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up reviewing it. So um, you'll be quizzed on that in future. <laughs> that's such. It's coming to you. That's so not surprising. I am going to have to read it. Someone's going to pay me to. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Adam McQueen there. Thanks to him and Helen Lewis. Now, for the second half of this week's podcast, we are talking once again about fascinating companies that sprang up or that did extremely well during the pandemic, uh, and then which had curious, interesting afterlives uh, with all the the money that they'd successfully made. In this case, we're going to be talking about a firm called Excalibur Healthcare Services Limited, run by a medical entrepreneur called Chris Evans. Uh, not that Chris Evans, uh, or the other Chris Evans that you're thinking of. Uh, This is Sir Chris Evans, who was at the helm of Excalibur and whose company, uh, being a medical equipment supplier, did really well uh, during the pandemic, as you might expect. But that is only the first half of the story, and it then became, after the initial Russia government spending, much more interesting. I started off by asking just how he had made sure that Excalibur did so well uh, during 2020 and following. Here's Richard. Uh, He got in on two fronts. Uh, One was the kind of bread and butter PPE, Mm -hmm. which, you know, any self-respecting medical entrepreneur uh, cashed in on. 
Um, <laughs> uh, he supplied uh, loads of face masks, mm. but he's he's actually better known from that period for supplying loads of ventilators. You might remember mm. when the pandemic broke, we were panicking that um, we didn't have enough ventilators. Yeah, uh, you know, we'd seen the the scenes from uh, Italy and. Uh, all looked uh, extremely serious and there was a the big shout went out to source ventilators or even mm-hmm. even invent them even create new ones you know it was like um, appeals for metals for <laughs> spitfires during the <laughs> second world war oh i was gonna um, say scrap heap challenge no but yours is yours is better yeah okay <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, i mean in the event we didn't need them all although yeah. to be fair they you know the, the health department and the suppliers uh, weren't to know that at the time. But what it meant was that um, they bought lots of ventilators at quite a hefty price mm. um, in their sort of desperation. And as with PPE, there were middlemen who right. stood in between suppliers in China and the health department. And just to say, I mean, when you say when you say a hefty price, that they were £50,000 each, which feels like a fair bit, especially when you're buying 2,700 of them. Yeah, th- yeah. That was the size of the contract was 135 million pounds, which is, I know we cover big numbers a lot, especially whenever you're yeah. on, incredibly big numbers are thrown around. But that that is a fair bit. Yeah, I think it was it was several times what the Department of Health had been paying just a few weeks before. Right. Now, you know, he's insist, well, the price just went up. The Chinese started charging a bit more. And, and it's this is one of those questions from the COVID era that's never really been properly resolved. You know, we don't know exactly how much he had to pay China. We don't know whether the 50000 was a reasonable price. What we do know is that the company that was his, his company, this Excalibur Healthcare, made some decent profits from it. Right. Its 2021 accounts show that it made 13 million quid from these ventilators and the PPE. Okay. It's not as much as some, to be honest. <laughs> there are people who made a lot more, uh, but uh, it's still thirteen millions, pretty tasty. Yeah, and so th- you you mentioned the middlemen. Is that a component of the price, or is that a reason why deals might have been done which which could have been made more efficient? Or what's the story there? Uh, well, this this is the the way that the uh, the whole COVID procurement system worked. Uh, the government. It almost outsourced procurement mm. uh, rather than uh, going to the Chinese, which was where most of the stuff was coming from, and saying, look, can we do some deals with you? We're the, we're, we're the British government. Mm. We're in desperate need, as others are. Can we get some big deals to for the PPE, for the ventilators and so on? Instead of doing that, I think there were a lot of uh, political reservations about that kind of approach. They right. just handed it over to uh, businessmen, usually businessmen, who had existing contacts out in China through all sorts of businesses. You know, it could be, you know, we've heard a lot of them. We've written about a lot of them. You know, they could have been uh, sourcing clothes, cheap, you know, like rag trade type business mm. people. Could have been buying pesticides we've heard about some of those um, all kinds of things anybody who had any dealings in China and mm. knew the people knew where to go knew the fixers they uh, they obviously spotted this opportunity and said okay uh, we can 
use our contacts to source usually PPE mm. um, and then flog it on to the Department of Health with what we've seen from a number of cases was a very, very healthy profit for themselves. Yeah, and so that that's kind of the standard model that was operating. And then, as you covered in the, in the story of, um, I was about to call him Mr. Evans, Sir Chris, what happened after this uh, initial rush of really good business? Well, it, sometimes it's hard to tell exactly what happened because company mm. accounts aren't all that informative. But what what you can see is that um, he made these this 13 million profit and then rather than paying himself a dividend which would have been taxable even through the the, the way that he owned the company he actually owns the company through um, a, another Isle of Man company which itself oh. is controlled by trusts by family trusts okay. um, but rather than channeling money directly that way as a dividend what he did was he arranged for the Isle of Man company to sell the uh, the healthcare company that made these profits um, to nice. uh, a couple of people we'd never heard of and still really uh, haven't heard of um, and insisted that the idea was that these people would carry on the business. They would take up the mantle under the directorship of somebody who just happened to be a long-term associate of his, his, uh, his accountant, finance director for, for many of his businesses. Um, and the idea was that this was a genuine business transfer. It would, uh, you know, the, the business would be carried on by someone else. He'd, he'd done his bit and he was out, mm-hmm. um, which it sounds plausible, but... <laughs> It also makes you think, well, is that really what it's about? Especially when the people who bought it had no experience in medical supply businesses that that we could see. Only one of them, I think, had any activities we could trace, which was a very small company described as an exotic fruit trader. Okay. Um, So really not one not people you might expect to pick up a major medical supplies mm. operation post-pandemic. Mm. You know, you we did see all kinds of weird and wonderful characters set up medical supply businesses specifically for the pandemic because they mm. could get PPE from the people they knew out in China. But after the pandemic, that was a, that's a bit strange. Um, you know, the money's been made by that stage. <laughs> you know, so- it's back to hard work. Yeah, what? I'm so baffled by this, Richard. What's going on? Well, I, I had discussions with Chris Evans' spokesman, who, and they've always insisted this was a, a, a genuine transfer of an ongoing business. Mm-hmm. That um, the the finance person, woman who's worked for Chris Evans for a long time, uh, wanted to sort of go on her own. It was time for her to to run a business. Um, but it just it it didn't really um, ring all that true to me, frankly. Um, but we but that's what we wrote. We 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 said what had happened. That was uh, last year, mm-hmm. um, and now more recently this year, we look at what's what's happened to the company, uh, having been transferred to these new owners. 
Um, it's been renamed International Medical Supplies Limited. Okay. A very uh, original sounding name. <laughs> Nothing suspicious there. Um, it just it really does sound like a perfectly normal business incorporated. Just like almost nothing to bounce off the surface of that one. Okay. It's uh, not filed accounts for for the, uh, the period you would expect it to, but it has gone into administration. Oh, oh sorry to hear that. And details of the administration show that um, it, uh, it owes quite a bit of money to some uh, suppliers, not of uh, medical equipment, but, you know, business service suppliers, and the largest amount to HM Revenue and Customs. Oh. Um, the amount is uh, £2.1 million in corporation tax, which roughly corresponds to the, co- the, the kind of level of corporation tax you would have expected it to pay on its 13 million profits that we talked about earlier right you know what what we see for whatever reason pre or whether it was contrived or it's Mm. just not worked out we see someone making a lot of money on covid contracts uh, and then the tax not being paid company going bust and Mm. tax not paid my concern is that without giving any spoilers for our next issue, it looks like there may be other companies doing this. There are PPE suppliers making huge amount of money from the taxpayer on the back of mm. the global pandemic, uh, and then packing it all in before it comes time to pay the tax bill. Okay, just help, but help me understand, Richard. So, if I like, let's say I've done this, with, which is always the analogy I go yeah. with, you know, let's <laughs> okay. say I do this usual. I'm going to get check in on company's yeah. house now. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. But if if I've made all this profit, how is it possible for the business to go bust so quickly? Is it because the profit has just been paid out in the form of dividends, or is it has it gone elsewhere? Like, wh- what's happened to that money that the business is now totally insolvent? Um, well, yeah, it, number of ways. Normally, it will be because the money's been paid out in some way, hmm. uh, so there isn't the cash left in the company. In this case. The, the story is that the company was passed on with some debts that had not been collected. Hmm. They'd already been kind of, they had not actually constituted part of the profits before, but the company had some debts which were handed, you know, with everything else in the company to the new owners. And they've written off those debts. They've said they're not recoverable. There's no, there's no real money in the company at all. There's just um, debts owed to them which won't be recovered and debts they owe to right. um, HMRC and others. So when you spoke to the company, they said, they, what did they answer in terms of how this had come about? Did they have an answer? Chris Evans' spokesman said that um, you know he's had no involvement in the company since he sold it, that the new owners uh, were aware of the debt that was recoverable and that when he sold it, the recovery process was underway, but that hasn't worked out. And he says they were also challenging whether the tax bill was correct, although the, um, you know, the filings at Company House show that it was a debt. And they also say that uh, Chris Evans uh, reinvested the profits he made in laboratory development, uh, wherever that is. <laughs> 
But it still profits, whatever you do with it. As far as I know, he didn't give it away. Right, and it's just one of those very sad stories of a firm that appears to be doing brilliantly, hands it over to a couple of people no one's ever heard yeah. of, including one exotic fruit supplier, and then it just yeah. it just all goes to pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> that was a real shame. Yeah, I mean, the um, <laughs> it's kind of, um, you know, the pandemic was kind of awful for most people, and uh, things looked up slightly afterwards. But for for a lot of these suppliers, it's the other way round, you know. So, you know, the golden days of the global pandemic are over. Richard Brooks there. Thanks to him and to everyone else from the first half as well. Thanks also to you for listening to this episode of Page 94, which is now over. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe. You can uh, leave a, a favourable review. You can just wait for the next one if you like. Or the fourth secret option you can do, you can rush out. Uh, to your computer and buy a subscription to Private Eye magazine, they are available at private-i.co.uk and we warmly encourage you to do that. This episode, as always, was produced by Matt Hill of Rethink Audio. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time.